All right, guys, what is up? We're on the 84th installment of the Plain and Win podcast. These are conversations around chasing excellence, and I have the sartorial shooter today with me. Jewel, how you doing, my friend? Life is good, man. Alhamdulillah, as we say over here. All is good. Thank you. How are you, bro? I'm good. Um, we have a lot to talk about today. You are a close friend of Andrew and Tristan, uh, a man that has gone through some stuff in life. You now live in Dubai, originally from Australia. Um, let's take a couple minutes and sort of hit on like the Batman origin story. Like, how did you go from Australia to special forces to doing what you do right now in Dubai? Yep, Roger that, man. Roger that. So, grew up pretty rough in Australia. Uh, the, the sort of typical single parent household on, on government welfare. Um, pretty driven from an early age to change my situation. Pretty angry about the fact that you know I was getting teased for having secondhand clothing. That's why it's all tailor made now. That's a big part of the origin story. Uh, and at a very early age, I realized that the, the secret to success, if you will, wasn't the academic pursuits. It wasn't necessarily just, you know, following what the, the schools tell you. It was learning to interact with people. Uh, and so I had a very strong focus. I was naturally a nerd, but I, I was trying to learn how to interact effectively with people and joined the military as soon as I could just to get out of, out of my hometown. Uh, I was an infantryman and then I moved into a specialist area. It wasn't special forces, although I did work with the, uh, the hitters a fair bit. I learned a number of languages. Spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and it was inevitable that after the military, I would be transitioning into the Middle East. You know, the, the, the money spent and the time spent learning the languages here, it was always inevitable. Mm -hmm. And so last 15 years in the private security sector, I've lived in Iran, uh, a lot of time in Iraq, lived in Syria, a lot of time in, in pretty much every you know, focus on, on Middle East and North Africa, uh, again, tying in with the languages. And last six years have been pretty steady in, in Dubai. I'm management now, so I get to you know, travel to a bit nicer countries than I used to. Uh, and I, I met the Tates a good five years ago and have been in, in a circle with them since. And that, that's the whole reason why I'm going loud. In my line of work, it's not really beneficial to have you know, recognition, so to speak. I, I mean, last few years, I had a bit of fun on Instagram, you know, showing off the lifestyle, trying to show what's possible. You can come from nothing. You can build you know, a custom-made reality. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but the main reason why I'm public now is to speak up for the Tates. And I think it's my duty. I've been around them more than anyone else outside their family for the last five years. There's so much nonsense that's been pushed forward. As a brother, it is my duty to go out and, and speak the truth and speak what I've seen uh, as a credible source. It's been around them a lot and offset all that nonsense. And whatever consequences come, I mean, the, the cancellation machine has come after me as well. That's fine. Uh, if you can't rely on your brothers in times like this, then they're not really your brothers, right? Mm. So I think that's the best way to sum up my my origin story. Uh, in terms of what drives me now, um, as soon as we can get the Tates out, it'll be back to regular programming. And I mean, just as we were chatting uh, over Instagram over the last few months, I think once you've got your money right and you've got you know the adventures with the boys, the next logical step is how can you give back? And I know you run a, a men's community. I, I put in a lot of effort into the, the war room, Tates men's community. Mm -hmm. So more and more for me, the, the focus going forward is how can I give back? You know, what I've learned, what I've learned from Tates, what I've learned from, you know, 20 years of a pretty interesting career. So that, that's one of my key focuses going forward in terms of the, the future story, if you will. Um, you're a sharp-dressed man. You were talking about growing up in an environment with a single-parent household. I'm assuming that was your mom, not your dad? That's correct. That was my yeah. mom. So, you know, you got secondhand clothes. They, we used to have a store here in, in the city where I live here in Toronto. It was called Byway. I don't know if it's still mm -hmm. around and other parts of the country, other parts of the world. But the but the running joke was, you know, kids would come up to me in, in school and they'd say, oh, hey, Rich, I'd like those jeans. 
but I couldn't get my arm down far enough in the byway box to reach it to pull it out because oh, it was nice. a uh, it was a, a um, clothing donation box, right? Um, so if I ended up with rips or tears in my knees, that's a dog Sorry. chewing on a chew toy. All right, right. Give me one second. Excuse the lack of professionalism there. Good. Come here, boy. Come here. Well, no, thanks. He's a beautiful boy. Doberman, I just flew over from Turkey. I saw that, yeah. I managed to find the one loud toy that I hadn't hit. Excuse me, mate. Please continue. Yeah, so, you know, they make fun of you and your clothing. And if, you know, you ended up with tears or rips in your jeans, you know, my mom would sew up some patches. And, you know, that's how we did it. You know, we didn't have a lot of money either. But um, the significance of that when you're a child and then growing into yourself and becoming a man when you have the resources, like how important is it to dress a certain way? for you today i mean it's it's such a core thing that I, I view it as more of a symbol of the fact that i i have you know that poor kid who was angry at his day-to-day -day reality i've yeah. changed that so for me it's beyond just dressing and wanting to look high status or project value this is me saying i was i mean we're all driven by our belief systems right and the belief systems that were formed during my formative years was that i was a poor kid who everyone laughed at and even that secondhand clothing smell there was a real, like I got teased about it in, in class. Mm -hmm. So I think as I was, you know, those early years, deep in my brain was this strong devotion to level up in life and the clothes are the symbol of that. So now you, you won't see me rocking a t-shirt or a hoodie, you know, like these tech bros. <laughs> I often say, if you're going to be a, you know, a professional, dress like a professional. Uh, and so it's, it's so deep in me that it's, 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 you know, symbolic of my rise from a poor kid to someone who isn't poor anymore to answer your question brother but also just a quick thing that i often say to, to a lot of guys in my circle if you want to do one thing that brings massive return on investment it's get to the tailors learn how to dress well you know find a tailor that you can work with over the years mm -hmm. the the roi on that in terms of projecting value professionalism also in dating but just feeling like you're the man and as tate often says you know there's no downside to believing you're the man it's only a positive right mm -hmm. if you want to really level up in terms of how you're perceived and how you feel I do believe that tailored clothing, you know, forget fashion, forget what's trendy, go with what's classic. That, uh, you know, one navy blazer and a sharp white shirt from a tailor's can really transform a young man's like life and how he's perceived and how, how he yeah. feels. So I, I've taken literally hundreds of my brothers to the, to the tailors for exactly that reason. That's how important it is. Yeah. And I mean, the cost to get tailored stuff isn't as expensive as you'd think it would be. I'm sure in Dubai, the, you know, the quality of the material and the uh, quality of the work is, is going to differ as, the other places, uh, you know, will do it. The guys that I use, they're actually from Hong Kong and they come here every four or five months. They rent out a hotel suite that, you, you know, you go in, they basically measure you up and then, you know, your shirts come in the mail uh, two, three, four weeks later. Um, you can get three shirts for about 300 bucks. Uh, you can get really nice shirts for, you know, a few hundred dollars more, but even like the standard shirts are well worth it. If, if all you can get is just three shirts, just get three shirts, you know, keep them on your rack, different colors, start with something at least at least with that because everything that's off the shelf i don't know if it's like this in dubai but here most people are relatively overweight you know they're obese morbidly obese somewhere in that realm so the shirts are very baggy they don't fit you around the waistline they're very puffed out same thing over there um i mean we don't have the uh, the north america's special in terms of you know that that mass obesity mm -hmm. uh, but I, what i would say from personal experience once you're used to tailored you cannot wear off the rack you just can't do it yeah. <laughs> especially for, for guys like us who have, you know, muscularity and, and body types that are not gelling with, you know, the, the average dude who, who likes his Netflix and his, his PlayStation, 
Um, yeah, I, I think anything I get off the rack likely won't fit. So it's I haven't I haven't worn off the rack shirts for, for ten years, and I, I don't think I can go back. Mm. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to cover. I also want to ask you know as we kind of move into all these different topics, how did you meet Andrew and Tristan? Okay, so five years ago, uh, I had a, a job on in, in Romania, and I didn't know anyone in Romania, and I, I knew them through social media. I contacted them; they helped out with some connections, and I said, I said, more as I mean. It was genuine, but it was a bit of a throwaway comment. I said, I've got a, a weapons and, and uh, tactics training company in Ukraine. Yeah. Would love to host you guys. Just as, a, you know, a gesture. Instantly, Andrew said, okay, when? I'm like, well, all right. <laughs> and then he badgered me. Like, okay, when? Okay, when? Okay, when? Like, he's a man of action, right? And so yeah. we hooked up. Uh, it was meant to be three days, you know, with some footage and, and, and good training. Not yippee shooting, all, all you know, practical training. Mm-hmm. And I put aside 2,000 rounds. We went through 8,000 rounds. And I know mm-hmm. you're a guy who enjoys the rounds, uh, enjoys the range. That's a lot of rounds for three days. It's a lot of lead to put down range. Exactly. And it was 12 hours a day, dusk till dawn. We weren't sleeping much. There was heavy drinking. I, I realized at that time these guys are built different. And also the way they learned, that mix of physical and mental ability, in fact, that they just didn't get tired. That's when I realized that there were something different. And then at the end of the three days, it was Tristan's birthday. And we're sitting in a, a cigar lounge in a hotel in Kiev. And as I'm sure you appreciate, there's a lot of distraction in Kiev. You know, three able-bodied men typically wouldn't spend an evening sitting, talking together for six hours. They'd be out doing other things, right? Mm. <laughs> but we just sat there together and talked. And that's when they started sharing their insights into the human condition, into society. And it was really apparent to me that, and I said it at the time, that they have a leadership role to play in humanity and, and in masculinity. And I said back then, anything I can do in my global network, you know, my, my particular set of skills from a long career, anything that I can add to, you know, the movement that you guys are doing, then I, I'm, I'm all in. And I've, I've been all in ever since. Uh, you know, I've messaged Andrew for a few years now. I've got him on WhatsApp. I was talking to him the other day and, um, you know, one of the things that I brought up before he blew up on social media, I saw it coming. You know, I saw mm-hmm. I saw those um, viral clips that were being made. They were they were they were being produced in the hundreds, probably almost on a maybe yeah. maybe daily could have been a weekly basis, you know, max. But there was a mm-hmm. lot of clips coming out. And I said to him at the time, uh, um, because I just had him on for a podcast, I, I think it was around the time he dealt with that culty issue. Um and I thought that was interesting how we how we dominated that scenario. That was that was definitely a playing to win episode. That's still on the podcast, by the way. You guys can go back and find it. And I said to him, I go, you know, who do you look towards as a mentor? Um, you know, who do you lean on? And at first he thought, you know, I was talking about kickboxing and he named the uh, coach. But, but I was talking more along the lines of because every top shelf guy always has a network of people that he can lean on to offer guidance to be a sober second thinker. If you're cooking up some idea that may not work, you know, usually often ask, you know, your inner circle, what they think of it. Um, and then that's when he introduced me to you. He said, you know, you should talk to Jewel. You know, he's a bit of a fan, you know, you he helped him out with something that I can't remember what it was at the time, or maybe, you know, you can talk about it, but um, it sounds like he's relied on you for quite a while. That was, that was four years ago. You did the whole Kiev shooting thing with him. Uh, five years now. Five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about relied upon. Tate's Tate. Like some people out there saying I'm Tate's manager. Hang out with Tate. Nobody manages Tate. My goodness. Mission impossible. I was going <laughs> to ask you, are you are you in fact his manager? Because that's a rumor no, that's going around. I'm not his manager. And I pity the fool who tries to be his manager. Like Tate has such clarity of mind, such frame, such um, conviction in, in what he does. I, I, I would 
I don't, no one can manage tape. Let's put it that way. Tape is tape. Can um, he manage I himself? Do, yeah, he can. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty, pretty conscious. Um, you know, quite, quite the strategician, quite the chess player. Um, yeah. I do have a relationship with tape, which I think is a bit unique. Like he and I will have pretty heated discussions if we disagree on something. Of course, I'm, I'm respectful about it. I, I mm -hmm. do view him as the, the most impressive all-round man I've ever met. So, of course, I'm very respectful. But also, with my background in, in risk, um, I'm often the guy who's playing, you know, Mr. Worst-Case Scenario. This could happen. That could happen. And I'm often putting that forward. Now, sometimes he listens to my counsel. Sometimes he doesn't. Mm. But I, I wouldn't say he relies on me. I think he, he, he appreciates my input. And at the end of the day, he's the CEO of his own brand. He's going to do what he's going to do. So that, mm. that's our relationship there in terms of my input to how he does what he does. Does he have a gag order on him right now? He can't speak to the uh, public or, or not, he can't I'm speak publicly? Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure entirely. I, I'm not read in with the legal team. Again, I'm his mate. I'm not, not his manager or not part of you know the PR or, or legal teams, which I do mm. know exist, obviously. Um, from what I understand, he's, he's – and I said this earlier um, – He's examining the chessboard right now. And it's a very complex situation. And he's the sort of guy, he's not going to rush into making any moves. So I do believe that he is allowed to do what he wants. But also, I mean, if I was trying to put a man in, put a man away, then I'd, I'd be wanting him to make mistakes, right? I think that's what the, the opposition, if you will, is thinking. And he's very cognizant of that fact. So he's very, he's being very careful not to make mistakes. So I believe he can say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, uh, but he's, assessing that chessboard. It's, it's the mid game, right? It's a very complex game. Many, many different factors involved. Uh, so as I understand, he's assessing the situation and when, when the time is right, uh, he'll make that, make that decision to go loud. You know, it's interesting. I'm, <clears throat> I've never met Andrew or, or, or Tristan. Um, they've extended it, invites to do rallies with them in the past. Um, it was mostly during the COVID period when travel was a bit of a pain in the ass, but um, they seem like good lads. They strike me as good men that are good at being men um i think andrew in, in particular is funny um he's articulate he's smart tristan's a bit more of a playboy he's a little, more, a little bit more of a joker you know of the two i think but i think they're both good guys and the funny thing is is you know whenever i post anything like there's no pictures of me and andrew together anywhere but people think that you know he's my pal that i'm part of his group that um you know people will say things like Here's here's actually what I get a lot of. I get a lot of the kids posting the promotional shit in my timeline on Twitter, you know, especially. And I also get the guys that are like, "Oh, you guys are pals. Why do you associate with him? You know, he's a low life piece of uh, pos." Blah blah blah. Both of these people get blocked, by the way. They're I have no time for either one of them on my timeline. But what what are they really like with the time that you spent with them in the five years? Are they those guys? Are they comics? Are they gentlemen? Are they or are they these you know? misogynist men that uh, abuse and take advantage of women. Indeed. So first of all, there's definitely a persona that you see with Andrew, but it is, he, he is, he's an entertainer and he knows how to turn it up. Uh, yeah, in terms of, how much, yeah. how much of that is entertainment though? Like you remember those cartoons, like the Johnny Bravo, you know, cartoons where it's like, you know, you take a, a 10, you turn it up to like 17. Mm. How much of that is really him versus him acting? You know, when you get all those, clips you know yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good question I, I at the end of the day he's a very brilliant man and, and brilliant men throughout history have always been very complex um i think it was uh, patrick Beck david who, who spoke about tape in that context mm -hmm. so to put an exact figure on that is always gonna be difficult um what i can say is the tape behind closed doors 
you know, around women, around his family, around his brothers, incredibly respectful, complete emotional control, never once seen him angry, never even seen him raise his voice. He's very calm, very logical, very rational, and also very respectful. That's the real talk. So the idea that he's some, you know, monster is simply not real. And you'll notice everyone in his inner circle came out immediately when they saw these allegations and said, hang on, we've been around this guy. That's not real. That's not who he is. Um, he definitely has... Um, a, a drive to, to make noise and, and create that, that, I mean, he's mastered the attention economy, right? He knows how to, to bring in attention. Better than anybody money. else in the last 10 years, easily. Yeah. But I, th I think the key point is people trying to say that what he said is therefore evidence of a crime. If, if that's the case, every gangster rapper ever needs to go to prison. You know, every, every yeah. um, shock, um, what are they? All the shock jocks, all the, all that stuff. All the female, so, you know, musicians, I, uh, you know, I drugged them and I stole his uh, money, you know, all of that mm -hmm. stuff. I think that one actually was literal, if we're referring to Cardi B. I believe most of them are literal, in fact. Yeah, I mean, really? All right. You know, hey, you... you know what I found was really impressive? You know, they locked him up and his brother and the, and the two gals. And I would assume that their strategy would have been, okay, the women will fold first. So we'll lock them up. We'll apply a little bit of pressure. We'll let them go. We'll bring them back. A little bit of push pill, standard mm -hmm. stuff. But they never seemed to strike a deal with them that would allow them to charge the two brothers with anything. I found that impressive that they had those two women loyal to him, loyal to them that entire period of time. And I think that speaks to two things. One, they take care of their people, like they're, they're good yeah. men, they're good giving men. And two, the truth is the truth. It really is like what has come out if people look at this objectively, and the two main complainants, that their their credibility is shot. That they, they are on record saying, Hey, let's take this story to Netflix. Oh, yeah, you did so right. well, you deserve an Oscar. Like if, if journalists want to actually be journalists and look at the verified leaks that have come out showing the conversation between the two women, they are conspiring to do this. Again, I'm not a legal professional, I'm not ready on legal matters, but just from seeing what's come out objectively, the credibility of the source of the people, the main people making these allegations is shot. It's not there. It's proven to be, you know, not real. So in that sense, uh, the, the whole thing is... is I think to sum up, Tate is a very good man, and everyone who's actually met him knows that. He's very respectful, very calm. He's not capable, nor is there any logical reasoning why he'd do such things. If you're flying private all the time and pushing a Bugatti, why do you need to, and do you have the time or energy to exploit some women to make small amounts of money online, on TikTok, or on whatever platforms? It's just not real. And that's why everyone on his team and Tate himself knows that he will be found innocent because mm. the truth is the truth. Logic will prevail. It's just a matter of the, the process playing itself out. What do you say to the folks that assess his um, rapid rise in fame and in wealth? I mean, um, I mean, I've lived in North America for the vast majority of my life. I spent a little bit of time in the UK, but uh, I've dealt with lots and lots and lots of entrepreneurs. I'm part of trade organizations, entrepreneurs org sort of stuff. He made a lot of money very, very quickly. And a lot of people have, you know, asked questions about that. It's raised eyebrows, right? You know, because mm -hmm. something like, what is it, 30 or 27 supercars in a Bugatti you normally wouldn't take a few years. What do you say to those guys? I think there's some basic maths that will help. Uh, and also, if you have $50, you can verify this. So his platform, The Real World, as I understand it, has over 100,000 subscribers with a very high recurring rate. And the, the tales of victory that come out of that are huge. So let's take 100,000. I'll let you talk about this too, you know, since you're on the topic of The Real World as well. Okay. Uh, 100,000 members times $50 a month. Do the maths. <laughs> Again, that's verifiable. You can join up and see the active members yourself. So as to where the money came from, that's one. 
I also know he was very active and making very courageous moves in, in crypto early on. So that's another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the man has this undying energy and undying workload. Again, I've been around some pretty high-profile people myself. He doesn't stop working ever. Like it's just everyday conquest. He wakes up angry. He doesn't eat until 5 or 6 p.m. because when he's hungry, his brain's clearer. Like everything about that man is driven towards conquest. And it's not a surprise to me at all. You've got the intellect. You've got this undying work ethic. You've got the support network, both his brothers, his brother, his blood brother, and, you know, the warm around him. And you've got this just unending desire for conquest. I mean, the man is, is a work machine. So I, I don't view it as a quick rise. I don't view it as surprising. And I think if, you, if you're able to build a platform that has well over 100,000 people, I think it's, it may be already, it, it did hit 200,000 people with a very high resub rate, you know, retention rate. There's obviously value there. The man knows how to bring in attention and add value to people's lives. And that, that's how you make money. If you can get attention and then monetize that attention and add value to the lives of the people who follow you, you're going to do well. So all this, this accusations about criminal this and that, I'm the guy who he talks to about his risk decisions. He is hyper aware of not doing anything criminal because he knows that would undo all of the legal stuff. That the, the halal way that he makes money, improving people's lives, would all be undercut should he do anything illegal. He's very mm. conscious of that. So there's nothing illegal there. And if there was, I wouldn't associate him. I associate myself with him. Very simple. I've got a life. I've got a family. You know, I, I wouldn't be around him if he was doing anything illegal. What are the future plans for the real world? The real world? I mean, I, I've started to get a little bit involved. I'm interviewing the top performers simply because I'm so sick of the bad press on this platform. It's an amazing mm-hmm. platform. So, you, you know, there's, there'll be more and more interviews with me talking to these guys. Where, out. Where's the bad press? Like, are there people coming out saying that I was a member and then these are all the negative things that happened? No, like, what sort no, of bad people press? people have been in say good things. It's, okay. There's a lot of media trying to say that it's, it's somehow, you know, a pyramid scheme or it's somehow a negative thing. It's $50. There's no mystery. Tell the journalists to go sign up and they can see mm. how active and how supportive the community is. There's, mm. no, there's no hidden, mysterious, you know, nefarious elements to it. It's hundreds of thousands of, of people hustling and supporting each other to make money online. I think it's, it, it, I know it's super positive. I've gone in and I've seen it myself. So mm-hmm. I'm contributing to that. As to the strategy, I'm not sure. I'm not involved in, in setting strategy or what's next, but I do know that the Tates are very involved in it. I know that Andrew is communicating to, to the world through the real world. You know, he's very active in there. He's, he's typing every day, as I understand it, inside. So for the people who want to get that you know, closeness to him, that's the place to do it. Uh, and that's, that's obviously conscious, right? Because it, it, it's monetized. Uh, as to the future, I don't know, but I know that Tate will continue to keep it relevant. He'll continue to make it a platform that adds to people's lives. And I think it's, I think it's just getting started. I think it's going to challenge conventional university education. You, get, you go to uni for three years, maybe get a job, or you can pay $50 a month. And man, look at, if you look at some of the, the wins coming out of this, we have capable people pushing, supporting each other and making real money. I mean, obviously, you've got to put in the work, right? There's no get-rich-quick element to it. But the, the, the story after story and these guys I'm interviewing, the successes they're having, it's real. It's very real and that's proven. And all these journalists, if they did a bit of looking objectively, they'd see that as well. The, the, um, the methods of making money are still tied around things like copywriting, video editing, affiliate uh, marketing, um, uh, like Amazon FBA, um, crypto and investing. Those are the main ones. Yep, and there's entire other campuses. Like there's one about financial literacy. So teaching the stuff that you should learn about taxes and about how to set up businesses and everything that school mm-hmm. doesn't teach you. There's one on public speaking now they're opening up to help people learn how to communicate effectively, which as you appreciate is a huge part of being successful in today's world. There's so many different areas of, 
of both the experts in there supporting and, and guiding, but also the community working together. It's genuinely positive. I, I, I Again, if Tate was some liberal who, you know, waved certain flags and was pro certain, you know, agendas, this would be an absolute darling of the global media machine. Because he speaks against the liberal narrative, all of a sudden it's, it's a bad thing. And I, I got sick of it. So I said, guys, I want to start interviewing the top performers because the, the, the positive stories need to be heard here. Mm, it's, okay. yeah, it's and those are on fun. your... Your YouTube channel? Is that where they're... Yeah, yeah, we're starting to drop them now. I've got okay. another four or five interviews after our chat tonight. It's, okay. And I, I'm so sick of the bad press being thrown at Tate and Tate's products. That's a big part of the reason why I've gone public. I can see credibly, object, not objectively, I'm pro-team Tate, but I am credible, right? Mm -hmm. I can see how positive what he produces is for his supporters, for his followers, that I need to speak up because I'm sick of all these media uh, accusations that he's somehow a negative... Uh, influence. Okay, some of the stuff he said, if you were 14 and very naive, perhaps you could take it out of context. I don't think so, though. 14-year-old boys aren't that stupid. They can tell when he's, you know, playing that character to, to, to say controversial things and get those clicks. 99% of take uh, content is very positive, it, and it has a positive impact on people's lives. But this whole idea that he's some nasty, bad influence is so far from the truth. He, he's, I mean, you, you're, you know, a speaker in the masculine realm yourself. Mm -hmm. There aren't many of you, bro. There aren't many masculine men giving rounded masculine advice to, to, to young men of today and, and to, you know, men of any age. And he's, I'll he's tell you, really yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what I've seen. So there's, there's useful advice out there. There is masculine advice being produced by people that are biologically men, but they are not good men and they are not good at being men. Um, when you realize who they are as people, you kind of peel back a few layers of the onion. You, like you'll start to cry when you see what their lives are all about. They're they're just not great people. So um, it's difficult when you have these conversations and you speak from a place of authenticity, from love, from commitment, from wanting to offer value and improve people's lives. And then you have people around you that may be saying similar things, but have been exposed for being absolute pieces of garbage. Um, there's a guilt by association, unfortunately. And I think that's what the media tries to do. I mean, I've seen them try to pull that on me over the years. They've tried to cancel me a few times. I've, I've had, um, tweets or even clips, um, mostly tweets that have been used in the media. There was one tweet that I, I can't remember what I said, but it was about five years ago, four or five years ago. And I had people try to get me fired from the company that I set up, uh, back in 2003, the debt relief company. And I thought that was hilarious because I am the founder and CEO on the Articles of Incorporation. And they actually went to the extent of running these shows and, and promoting it and then trying to get me fired from my own business. You know, they look you up on LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff and they try to get people involved. It's like, it's not going to work. But this is the but this is the reality of the world that we live in. You know, when you have these conversations, when you broadcast ideas that um, touch into these realms, because there are a lot of shady, weird people out there. Um, you guys invited the, um, vice fellow. I can't remember his name, um, to one of your retreats where you had the, uh, the uh, fight session, you know, with the MMA, with the MMA guys, you offered an opportunity to war room members to get into the octagon and test themselves. Um, what was that guy's name again? Uh, Matt, Matt. Okay. Uh, so yeah. like, what was the story behind the story with that? I know you've probably talked about it before, but I haven't heard it, but you know, you invited him in you know, with goodwill to say, you know, come on in, take a look at how things are, meet some of the members, watch what we do. And then the final produced piece when I saw it was really about um, a couple stories behind some girls who 
felt whatever they felt at that time um, and wanted to talk to Vice about it to make the Tates look bad. What really happened when that guy, Matt, was behind the scenes with you? Okay, so first of all, he said he wanted to do a documentary on the war room when it turns out it was just a hit piece on tape. Now, Tristan and I rightly called that it was a hit piece. Uh, yeah. Andrew's logic was they're going to do it anyway. Let's at least let them see the reality. Now, mm-hmm. Matt came in speaking about journalistic integrity, about the fact that he put forward an objective. Uh, Did you, you guys know, use uh, videographers to film from your angle as well, too, while he was there with his guys? Um, to a certain extent, but not for the final interview, which is a okay. massive mistake. Because that final interview, my goodness, Tate absolutely destroyed him. To the point where from the three-hour interview, they, Vice could only use you know, the last minute, which was me you know, getting upset and walking out. <laughs> right. That was when the, the true agenda came out. So Matt's right. exact words were, I'll be objective, I'll show both sides of the story. That event was incredibly positively transformational for everyone who went through. The guys who fought and the guys who didn't fight. There was a real buzz. You know, you bring high quality men together. Everyone examines their weaknesses, where they can improve in life. Does something challenging. It's what men have done all throughout history, that rite of passage. Yeah. We were so, talking about that before we launched. You have to test yourself. If you're going to learn combat skills, you must test yourself. Get in the ring. Get punched in the exactly. face. See what happens. Exactly. And that's what it was all about in a very yeah. risk-managed way, very responsible. Incredible event. Absolutely incredible. Super positive. They didn't show any of the positivity. Even Matt himself was enjoying it. The, the other guy, Jamie, said to me, uh, yeah, I, you know, this is, this is he likes his boxing as well. He said, I see the good of what you're doing here. There was a lot of positivity. And there was a bunch of shots that they seen, they, a bunch of scenes that they shot that were really positive. Men supporting each other. Mm-hmm. After Matt sparred with Tate, I went over and gave, gave him some water and gave him a bit of a pep talk. But all of that was cut out so that they could push this negative agenda. So I think the reason there's been such a backlash against Vice, uh, and it has been pretty intense, and against you know the, the people involved, they came in saying they'd do something objective. And of course, they're going to push their narrative. I get that. But they completely cut out all the positive elements and, and tried to skew things. They, they falsely edited some of Tate's reactions, you know, trying to show that he was reacting to one of Matt's questions when he wasn't. There was a lot of very shady, very unethical practices put forward both in the filming and the you know the final edit of that and so to me it, it just goes to show that yes vice is is trash yes a lot of you know modern day journalism is is just propaganda and, and certain types of people on the political spectrum pushing a certain agenda uh so the whole thing was, was quite laughable to be honest the war room remains an extremely positive group that event was extremely positive and everyone on the vice team knows it and they saw it even though they're Corporate masters made sure they put out just a blatant one-sided hit piece in the final documentary. Yeah, you do have to be very careful with the mainstream media. I learned that lesson in 2010 and 11 when they started asking for commentary on this bill that was passing legislation here that I was the lead lobbyist. I was I was working with the lead lobbyist on, and um, they brought in major TV shows into my office. We had to move all the furniture around. They do lighting, the makeup, all that kind of stuff, and. They completely twisted the um, end product around. Um, It's, you know, it's a bit of a shame because growing up, you know, you look at the media and you respect it because there's an authority there that a camera is on with lighting and they're properly dressed and they look like they're righteous and all that, but they really aren't. Uh, If you invite the media into your life, my recommendation is do it knowing that they're probably going to modify the story to whatever narrative they want to push. So record it on your end, have a professional videographer, even if it's just cell phones, even if you have some sort of recording from a different angle, from your perspective in real life, as they're doing it from the different angle, then you've at least got something to lean on because you, because you simply can't trust them. And that's just the reality of the world today. That's, that's what the media has become. We saw what happened with um, Elon Musk the other day with that BBC 
good top E as we call them. Yeah, good. Yeah. On them. No, it's 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 been amazing. I mean, I always knew the media were biased. I've been media trained, you know, when I was working um, in, in Australia in, in various capacities and, and in, in various corporate roles. And so my policy has always been just don't touch them, don't have anything to do with them. But again, to, to speak after the takes have gone public. But man, seeing firsthand what happens, you know, with the journalists and with the media types in real life, and then seeing the final product that they push out, my goodness, these people are shameless. There's no such thing as journalistic integrity anymore. There's no such thing as professionalism in journalism. These guys are here to push a certain agenda, and they truly don't care about truth. It's it's wild to see. It's been a real eye-opener, even for me, as a guy who's you know seen a bit of the world, and I'm naturally pretty skeptical about people and journalists and like, even I was shocked at how low-down, unethical, scumbaggy their behavior has been around this whole Tate situation. Yeah, and the amount of influence that they still wield is uh, shocking, you know, to say the least. I have to believe it's dying. I mean, you have to be pretty high-level program sheep to actually think that the media is anything other than a propaganda machine driven to yeah. make you a certain type of, you know, easily malleable human. Yeah, well, when they deplatform you, that you know, that was the first step. When they de deplatform you and they take you off the mainstream platforms to silence you, you don't prove the man wrong. You just prove it, prove that he has something to say that people now really want to hear. Right. Um, plus, I think he got even more reach after they deplatformed him because the strategy with the um, the kids using the clips was just phenomenal. That was brilliant. That was just great, man. He never went away. He didn't look canceled to me either. That's it. At the end of the day, all these people who are competing for attention, you know, the, the youth or you know, young men or, or anyone really, does their message improve your life? You know, all, all these internet celebrities. I didn't know a lot of them existed. Uh, but, you know, through being in, in, in Tate's orbit, I've, I've come across a lot of them. There are a lot of people who are famous just for the sake of being famous. Yeah, they're dancing clowns. Yes, they might be amusing, but how yeah. do they add value to your life? If someone follows Tate and, and you know, the tenants of, of Tate, as per, you know, CobraTate.com talks about yeah, self-accountability, discipline, talk, yeah. talks about being, being the man who protects and provides all these positive masculine traits, which no one else is really you know, putting out there except for yourself and, and some others in, in, in similar sort of speaker demographics, those who follow Tate, their lives are improved. And some of them drastically. I walk around with Tate all the time. You have people walking up, hey, Hustlers University changed my life. I bought a car for my mom. You know, your, your message has really helped me get back in the gym. Your message has made me want to you know, have better relationships with my parents. If your message improves the, the lives of your followers, you're only going to get more and more famous. So all these people are surprised about the fact that Tate got famous quick. I don't, I'm not surprised at all. His message is transformationally positive for those who follow it. Of course, he's going to get famous. And of course, he's going to stay famous. You can't cancel a voice that significantly improves people's lives because they're hungry for more. It's, yeah. it's simple market demand. Um, he recently converted to Islam, right? Mm -hmm. In the fallish, roughly? Yeah, I think it was December. Yeah. And you, you were prior to that already converted or was it something that you've done recently? I was, post, I was post that, yeah. But I mean, I've, I've been in the Middle East for 15 years. I, I first had Muslim friends trying to make me revert back in yeah. 2004, you know, so it's, <laughs> I've been around it for a while. Can, can you talk about Islam? Because I don't completely understand it. I have some Muslim friends. I have some understanding around it. But you as a Caucasian Australian man that, you know, lives in Dubai, I'd like to hear from your perspective why you chose to adopt that as your religion and how that's been for you. Certainly, mate. So for me, the path to Islam was a very slow one. There was a lot of reading and, again, a lot of speaking to, to practicing Muslims. And I realized the brothers who are really 
uh, about it and who really you know earnestly practice islam they're men you can respect they're the sort of men you want around you those who take their, their faith seriously and so i think as men we all want that brotherhood uh, we all want a, a relationship with or a way to interpret this human experience a relationship with a higher power or whatever label you want to give it mm. uh, and i think nowadays and this is an important point for young men especially we live in age in an age where there's more distraction than ever you know there's unlimited porn that's free on your phone hookup culture man let's face it it's not it's not hard to get caught up in, in endless casual sex with women uh, it's easier to access you know drugs and alcohol and all these things more than ever before the beauty of islam is that it provides a very clear system with which to approach your daily life it's a lot more than what other religions are as i understand them and there's a system for living which demands if you practice practice it earnestly it demands discipline it demands that you be strong it demands that you work hard to to protect and provide it demands that you show respect to your brothers the spike in discipline and and the way i'm successfully kicking goals every day the way i'm successfully you know avoiding hedonism not drinking is a great blessing completely cutting away all dating and, and just meaningless sex and frees up a lot of time. Islam has given me a, a real boost with which to live the most productive life that I can simply because it enforces, if you practice it earnestly, such a clear discipline, such a clear structure and a system with which to approach life. And it's, it's real powerful. It, it is really a, a, a way to supercharge your life, again, if you practice it earnestly. Mm. What are your um, favorite parts of it? I mean... My, my decision was was logical to revert in that I saw it as a way to be a better version of the man that I am. There's also an emotional element. So when I, I live across from the mosque, which is quite a beautiful thing. So I, I, I aim to pray once or twice every day in the mosque. And in Islam, they say that's a moment for your heart to be at rest. And what, what that means essentially is that you can forget, you know, all of your stresses, forget the, the daily worries, you know, is my fourth supercar working or not? You can forget all these things, you know, the problems of the world. And you just focus on what matters and what doesn't. And, and just the, this, the sentence, Allahu Akbar, saying God is the greatest, you're reminding yourself that your worldly troubles don't matter. You are programming your mind to keep in mind what matters and what doesn't. And if you try and pray as often as possible, you are routinely throughout the day having a perspective reset about what matters and what doesn't. And let's face it, in this world, there's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of material issues. To regularly stop, to clear all of that out and just ground yourself and remind yourself what matters and what doesn't, I find it be very powerful. I also love that the brotherhood in Islam, it's real. There's real brotherhood there. Uh, and I love the fact that the more I learn about Islam, the more I want to learn about it. And it's not a chore. For me, you know, sitting, reading, I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. You know, I find it a bit of a chore when I have to read about a new topic. The more I read about Islam, the more I learn, the more I want to learn. And I thought I understood Islam before I reverted. Man, I, I know nothing. There's so much to learn. You can literally devote your life to learning. There's such content there. And the amounts of moments I've had where I've found belief systems, you know, through human experience, but then I read about it in an Islamic text. I'm like, okay, this was written hundreds of years ago. And it took me maybe 40 years to figure this out myself. What if I'd found this as, an, as, as a man, you know, earlier in life? And just the other day, actually, a guy in, in War Room in Scotland, he's 21, he chose to revert. I reached out to him and said, hey, man, congratulations. Welcome to the Brotherhood. What was your reason for doing so? He said, consciously, I know that I will struggle and I am struggling with all of the, you know, the women, as I said, you know, access to hedonism, all the distractions of the world. 
Islam is the, the most powerful way to make sure I'm living on a straight path. It's a term that's used. That my days are free of distraction, that I'm staying disciplined, that I'm, I'm mm-hmm. staying free from, you know, shaitan and all the rubbish that's out there, shaitan being the devil. And he's much respect to him. As a young man, you know, in Scotland, he hasn't got a mosque across the road. He has, through a process of research, thought, what's the best system I can adopt to best interpret the human experience and be the best man that I can, the most disciplined man that I can? And the answer that he came to, as many are coming to nowadays, is Islam. Super powerful, man. I'd love to, I'd love to send you some reading. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll certainly take a look at it. Is there encouragement in the war room to join Islam? No, the war room is completely, um, you know, like there's a lot of Muslim brothers in the war room because mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, traditional values. Uh, men being men, women being women. This is all pretty strongly protected within Islam. So there's some similarities in belief systems, but we have every religion you can imagine in the war. Mm. It's, it's not about religion. It's about men working together to achieve masculine excellence in all, in all areas of life. Living in a place like Dubai and as traveled as you are seeing the world and you're very familiar with the whole like liberalization of the West and the mm. narrative of the toxic feminism stories and the trans flags and the, you know where it's going and where I'm going with this. Have you seen much of this tried to penetrate Dubai, have you seen much of this try to penetrate Islamic culture and religion? Is it is it trying? Is it having any success? I'm just curious as far as what you've seen. Yeah, it's definitely trying. But I think the benefit over here is you have the state tied into religion. And back in the day, I used to always think that was a bad thing. But if you don't have you know the leaders held to account by religious code, then they can do whatever they want. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and humans are pretty self-centered. Um, so I think the fact that the laws here are backed up by Islam... Yes, you know, American culture will creep in. You know, yes, it's hard to stop young people get, getting their heads polluted with all the TikTok and Netflix nonsense. But there's a strong foundation um, behind the laws here and in the minds of the leaders, and that is Islam. And I firmly believe that, inshallah, in a thousand years, people will still be practicing Islam the same way. Mm-hmm. It's fiercely protective of its values, of its, of its holy you know, scriptures and, and so on. And there's, I think if, if you wanted to bet on one religion lasting you know, the coming centuries, it has to be Islam. It is so strong in its beliefs. So yes, you see the West and and liberalism trying to permeate, uh, but I I do view this part of the world as a bit of a bastion, again, because it's backed up by by that relationship to a very strong faith. And just the other thing I'd put out there, I'd like to think that in Dubai, both in the local community and the expat community, people are pretty, like you're allowed to speak freely here. Obviously, you don't speak against the government or against religion. That's fine. But you are allowed to speak. You are allowed to say things like, I think if a woman, a man is, or, you know, I think if a kid says he feels like an elephant at the age of six, that doesn't make him an elephant. And you shouldn't go and put, you know, elephant hormones in him. You're allowed to say these things over here. It's quite refreshing. Uh, And so also, I'd like to think that at least the people, the circles I mix here, they understand that all these liberals pushing their liberal agendas, they're not very happy people. They don't have quality relationships. And as I said on that Vice documentary, of course, any man can do what he wants. Any woman can do what he wants. The question to ask is, how are those belief systems working out for you? And whenever I see, you know, uh, liberal relationships where the man's trying to be the woman, woman's trying to be the man, everyone's competing, it doesn't seem like there's much passion there. It doesn't seem like there's much productivity, you know, working together as a family unit to to win and to live the best life we can. Whereas when I look at those relationships that are adhering to traditional values, you have a man protecting and providing. He's stoic. You have a woman caring, making a beautiful home, supporting a man in every way. You're providing that feminine healing energy that, that men can't produce themselves. That's where I see fulfillment. 
So I have to believe that this whole liberal push is going to fade off simply because the people who buy, buy into it, they're not happy. The mm. people who reject it and they follow those traditional values, they're fulfilled. That, that's my read on these things. Well, which, which country or leader do you admire at this point in your life as you, as you sort of look around at the way things are unfolding? That's a very easy answer for me. It's going to have to be the UAE. The leadership here, I know that there's a lot of pressure on them to modernize and liber- you know, be, be more liberal. And I understand that they're calculating these things and, and doing it in a very careful and conscious way, but they're still making sure that faith is first and foremost. They're still making sure the values that th- this culture are, is based on, those traditional values of, of men being strong and capable, of women being supportive, and, and of course capable as well, but you know, not trying to be men. <laughs> uh, that's being kept here. So the leadership of this country, I think they've got the perfect balance. You've got that modern lifestyle, Mm-hmm. But there's also no crime and there's also you can speak about traditional values. You can speak against liberal agendas. I really do think the leadership of this country have got it absolutely right. And that's why I, I encourage everyone, especially those with the family, have a look at the UAE. It's, it's safe. It's, it's, the schooling is incredible. You're not going to have any strange agendas pushed on your kids without even knowing about it you know, mm-hmm. in school. Anyone in the West who really wants to protect the minds of their children would do well to relocate over to Dubai or, or to the UAE. How is the school system there for children? I'm curious about that too now. So do they, do they teach, you know, boys to be men and girls to be women? Like, what does the curriculum look like? Okay, so there's, there's British curriculum, there's, you know, international baccalaureate, international, you know, the international curriculums. It's the same as anywhere else, but mm-hmm. you won't get any liberal propaganda pushed. That's all it is. That just, no one, as I understand it, no one will dare. <laughs> there's, there's, Islamic law here. And so if you come in and you try and put, push something of a sexual nature on children, you're going to get in trouble, and rightfully so, because you're, you're going against the laws of the country. So mm-hmm. it, it's, man, the schooling here is amazing. Both my kids were, were here for their early years. You know, they, they now live in another country, but I couldn't be happier with the, the first five, six, seven years of, of both nursery and schooling that they had without any weird agendas in a very safe environment. And at one point, I think there was something like 108 different nationalities in, in my kids' schools. It's such an international environment. Man, I, the, the schooling here is one thing I've really got right as well. It's incredible. Mm, interesting. Is there anything that you don't like about Dubai? I miss the nature, brother. I really do. Like, I grew up in, in Oz. I miss, yeah. I miss the rolling hills and the trees and so on. But, I mean, there Greenery. is nature here, uh, yeah. but it's just not as green as what I'm used to, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it makes but sense. You can, you can travel. We've got Emirates Airlines. You know, traveling with Emirates is a, is a real blessing as well. They just travel yeah. where I get. No, it's a good hub. I've spoken to a few people that are, you know that have to travel for business, and they find that Dubai is uh, geolocated very well. So if you want to hit Asia, it's close. If you want to hit Europe, it's close. Uh, you know, most of what you need to hit and do business, with the exception of North America, is relatively close. Um, you're a big car guy. <laughs> Let's talk about cars, man. Um, actually, I want to talk about the colors that you select for your cars because they always end up being an emerald green and gold and shrimp. Can you can you talk about those wraps and those interior trims? Because, I mean, I think you ripped apart the interior of your Ferrari and you had it redone in green and gold, didn't you? I wasn't. I haven't taken it to a Ferrari club meetup yet. I'm a bit reluctant to do so. I'm not sure if that would prove. You know, Ferrari is very old money. <laughs> what I do to my cars is extremely new money. Yeah. Uh, for me, green's always been the color, um, you know, of, of nature, now of Islam. Uh, and I just thought, why not make all the cars green? You know, anyone can buy a car, but really modifying a car, making it yours, I mean, that's fun. And I love the, I love the build process. I love, you know, the custom wheel makers that I use. I love the, the mechanics that I use to tweak that power. I love the interior guys. I love 
really making something an expression of who I am and what I like. And that ties into this whole custom-made reality. A lot of people with money, you can attest to this. A lot of guys, I'm sure that you, you deal with with your coaching, they've got their money, right? They're rock stars in business, but their day-to-day reality isn't very fulfilling. They don't have that mm-hmm. custom-made reality. And that's something we really promote within the Warham and work towards. Having Waking up every day thinking every single element of my life to the simple stuff like the clothes or the cars or the house, to the more complex stuff, to that meaningful work, to the brothers that I have around me, Every single element of my day-to-day reality is as fulfilling as it can be. I'm giving back to society. I'm mentoring. I'm, I'm going on adventures with the brothers. That, to me, is living. That, that is my current focus, my current goal. And, and the cars are just a representation of that. I could, I could never leave a car stock. The Corvette, I, I tried for the longest time to keep it in warranty. Nah, it's gone. Warranty's gone. <laughs> I'm going to tweak it heavily. Uh, because, again, I'm building that car. Everything in every area of my life that I want to be a certain way, I make that certain way and it's very fulfilling. And I'm trying to encourage other men to to think, you know what? You don't have to live the life that the world prescribes for you. You've you've seen that study, the five wishes or five regrets for dying. Regret number one, I believe, is I wish I lived a life that I wanted to as opposed to the life that was expected of me. And this was a study of thousands of men on their deathbed. So within the war room, and something I really push personally, have the courage and, and take, show me what was possible here. Have the courage to go and create that life that you want, not the life that others expect of you. I was very conservative and I, I saved a lot more than I do now and was very, you know, sort of spendthrift with my money. Now I enjoy my life. I've got enough, you know, I'm financially independent. I'm not going to go hungry. Let, let's be that guy who takes a $400,000 Ferrari and rips it to pieces <laughs> and hope that it ends up well because, you know, what, it's my life and I have the courage to do what I want with my life. And so that's, mm-hmm. That's something that Tate's really role model and something that the Warren really promotes. And that's why, to answer you know, your, your question in a long manner, that's why all the cars look the way they do. Uh, um, I'm going to try to pull up your Instagram just to sort of show you guys some of these cars because um, I think they're fun to look at anyway. Um, is, it a, is it from the design perspective of the vehicle you're doing it because of the aesthetics of infusing the uh, green and gold into the design of the car do you look for lightness like when you design wheels you know for example do you ask the manufacturer to ensure the wheel is as light as possible to reduce the unsprung weight like is it is it looks over function or is it function over looks for you i mean look i should say it's function over looks but it's not (laughs) it's aesthetics i really do enjoy creating cars that have that sort of emotional impact on me and i love my cars i can never sell them i personalize them way too heavily uh and Look, I do put them on Instagram. I do have fun with them. But at the end of the day, I'm doing it for me. If someone doesn't like what I'm doing, then, you know, all right, fine. That, that, that's, I mean, to quote our man, Tate, what color is your Bugatti? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's 100%. Uh, <laughs> that's like a classic it's line. Mostly, it's mostly aesthetics. Uh, I, I enjoy making something mine, if that makes sense. I enjoy having fun with it. Sorry, excuse the water. The um, uh, it's, we Muslims in Dubai can now break their fast. So I need some water. <laughs> okay, no problem. Um, are you in a period of uh, fasting right now? You can't eat or drink during yeah, the day? Ramadan's amazing, man. I didn't realize. like, And this is where the intelligence of the system of Islam comes out. Your mind is clearest when you're fasting. I mean, I'm sure you know that. Yeah. So Islam requires you to fast for a month, a year, and to, to focus on prayer, to focus on you know, family, to focus on community. It's such a... There are so many powerful elements to Islam that until you've experienced it, you don't really appreciate how beneficial it is. Imagine one month a year, if you were fasting and reflecting on your faith and reflecting on life and, and you know praying as enthusiastically as possible, wouldn't that be a healthy thing? Wouldn't that be a healthy reset each year? 
That's what Ramadan is. So from the outset, people think, oh, they just don't eat. That's, that doesn't make much sense. It's a month to really focus on your faith and focus on what matters in life with a clear head that comes from fasting. I think it's, And you can't it's drink water during the day either. Then. It's a dry fast. And that, man, dry that fast. messed me up to start with. I'm no stranger to fasting. But yeah. that dry fasting, massive headaches. But then some of my brothers taught me some, some tricks to get around that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah um, the water is, what, what is, is challenging, definitely. But it, it so, demands you to slow down. It demands you, you must slow down and reflect on, on your faith and on, on what's real. It's, it's powerful, man. It makes a lot of sense. So this, is, so this is both your cars. This is a shot from the Ferrari shooting the Corvette. Um, I got to ask you, because a lot of um, Aussies that I know, they tend to have an affinity for American muscle cars. I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Australians just love American muscle cars. What, what is it with that, man? Like, why do you guys like American yeah, muscle cars right. so it's, much? It's a real thing. And there's a real community in Australia for classic muscle cars, too. I think yeah. it's just because it's so masculine. I, I really do. It's a real, it's a masculine thing to have a muscle car. And also, the Ferrari that I've got, uh, the A12, if I wanted that car in Australia, it's almost a million dollars. Like, there's taxes and things that just jack up the price. In, in, you know, a million Aussie dollars, which is about six, seven hundred, uh, you know, US dollars. So I think. A lot of these cars that I have here in Dubai are just they're just unattainable for a lot of people in, in, mm -hmm. in Australia because of the strange taxes and import duties and all these things. The Aussies love their muscle cars. And, man, I love that Corvette. If I bought the Corvette first, I might not have bought the Porsche or the AMG or the Ferrari. It ticks so many boxes for the price of a nice watch. Mm -hmm. People are like, oh, it's only a Corvette. Say what you want. It's an incredible car, incredible value, and it's so much fun. Even on track, it's fun. It's so flat. Like, it's a good car. Yeah, the, it's a it's a really good platform for what I've seen. I mean, I haven't driven it yet, but I was watching a video the other day. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Drag Times with Brock, and he and he put a Z06. Yeah, he 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 put a, a Z06 up against an 812, and mm -hmm. the Z06 actually beat the 812 down the uh, quarter mile. The wow. Ferrari's traveling faster at at the trap, yeah, but the sense. Corvette beat it to the quarter mile. I think it was like a a 10.5 versus like a 10.8. So the so the Ferrari's a little bit slower, but on the highway it's it it really moves. And that Corvette's um, one third, one fourth, even one fifth the price. I can't argue with that. Yeah. Well, well, the Z06. I don't know what they sell for because they're all going well over lists. You probably be able to buy one in about a year or two for about 150, 160, something like that. Okay. All right. That's all right. That's that's. Okay. Z06 no, is a bit different from the stock C8. The C8's a nice car, like the one you have, but the Z06 with that with that flat plane cr crank, it, it sounds phenomenal. It's an incredible motor. Yeah, I did want one of those, but I couldn't wait. It's taken a while for them to get over here. You won't, you won't be able to get one. I mean, I, I called the dealer when they announced it, and they're like, "Yeah, we can get you one in like three years if you want to put a deposit." I'm like, "I'll just, I'll wait for one to show up on the used market. Maybe I'll get one then." It's like buying a Rolex watch at this point, right? You get on the wish list, and you just hope. Isn't it insane like how, 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 how difficult it is to get some of these toys? I think, I think it is at the moment. I have to believe that we're close to some kind of recession and things are going to normalize a bit. There's so much money floating around. Everyone's you know, everyone's trying to get a piece of every toy that they can. Yeah. But uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question, man. Yeah. I, um, when I was getting divorced back in 2018, after nine years of being the textbook you know, uh, plow horse, as it's discussed nice in, yeah. in Red Bull theory, yeah, the nice guy, just getting exploited, uh, your work, Rolo's work and your work really helped me in terms of mental health, in terms of deciding that I did deserve better and that I did deserve healthy, supportive woman in, you know, women in my life. Um, but also, I, I personally believe that red, red Pill is very useful in terms of understanding what's wrong and understanding the risks and understanding, you know, and having that wake up to wake that cheap man up so that he can understand that he, he deserves better. What do you believe is the answer? I, I, I have an answer. I'd love to hear yours. 
mm-hmm. once you've got that red pill awareness and you're aware of the issues that can come from you know just following that blue pill dream what do you think is the solution for then going on and creating positive respectful relationships and not just analyzing the problems but finding the solution because i find some red pill theory again great for identifying the risks but doesn't really give, give that solution going forward what's your view on that one yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that conversation. I think that's a great topic. Are you talking specifically to deal with women? or? Yeah, specifically. I mean, I, I truly believe that a man's core focus should be his mission in life. But yeah. if there's one way a man can mess up his life, it's by you know allowing a woman to come in who hears the screen probably, who, is, who doesn't have the same expectations as him, who isn't supportive, who's looking to exploit it. I think in the West, that sort of woman, you know, that narcissistic creature is, is more and more being created by popular culture. So, yeah, specifically in terms of to women. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So I've thought about that a lot. You know, um, I've got less life ahead of me than I have behind me. I'm probably not going to live as long as, um, you know, as I am today. And I've put a lot of time into relationships, girlfriends, dating. I was married at one point, divorced. Um, I've put a lot of ego investments into some of those relationships when they didn't deserve them. And Definitely the whole mental point of origin, putting yourself first, making your mission, your, your purpose. And she's a compliment to that is significant, like adopting that. But I think another big part of it too, is you have to surrender to some realities of the world. And some of the realities of the world include women and female nature. And that's going to, that's going to depend on where you live. I mean, if you live in North America, there's certain realities that you're going to have to surrender to that women uh, are just about here where you might not get in other parts of the world in Asia, maybe in Muslim culture, for example. But, but I think that women's baseline nature being hypergamous uh, creatures, you know, it only makes sense. Like, why would they want to expose themselves to unnecessary risk to pair bond and mate with a loser? You have mm-hmm. to make sure that you're looked after, your children are going to be looked after, you're vulnerable when you're pregnant as a woman, your children are vulnerable when they're small. We live in modern times of... of unlimited security if you need it and safety you, you know uh, a thousand years ago you'd be worried animals would break into your camp or your you know your village and perhaps kill or steal your children or whatever right so it makes sense that women are the way they are but there's also factors that compound on top of that you've you've got social media you know you have women with a entitlement and a set of sense of brattiness which i don't think you know, it's been said many times in the Mano Swamp out there lately in the last uh, six to 12 months where, you know, people will say the uh, woman that your grandfather found, he had to work ha- half as hard and she was twice as good as a woman today. And I think that's true. I think that women today aren't as great as they had been in the past, mostly because of promis- pr- promiscuity. It's been pounded into women's heads now that it's okay to be promiscuous, to sleep with a lot of men. Uh, it's inconsequential. It shouldn't matter. But we've seen, and I've heard Andrew talk about this too, but we've seen that women that have been with more guys have a lot more baggage, right? You're going to have to deal with more. He hurt me. He did this to me. That guy did that to me. You know, they just carry that shit around like a burlap bag of bricks. I always say that resentment and guilt are the two most negative emotions you can feel. One is towards somebody else. One is towards yourself. And what a lot of human beings like to do is they like to take these, take these bricks and they write shit on it. He cheated on me. Throw that in the burlap bag. Uh, you know, he uh, hit me once, throw that in the burlap bag. And they take this invisible bag and they throw it over their shoulder and they walk around with it. Mm -hmm. And all they have to do is put that fucking thing down and walk away from it. But they don't like to do that. 
-hmm. I think humans like to carry that, that burlap bag with all those little bricks, all those heavy bricks that pile up and, you know, with women and relationships, the more of that stuff they get, they don't deal with it. They don't reconcile, you know, a lot of those differences. So there's a lot of realities that you have to accept. And I think, you know, most of it gets dealt with reasonably well within guys that create red pill sort of content. I see guys that are out there that are clinical psychologists that say that they detox men from red pill content sort of thing. And then I listen to their conversations and I think to myself, you're fat. You're talking about things that don't make any sense. I would not want to trade my life for your life. No, thank you. So you see what I'm like? It's, it's a, it's a large puzzle with hundreds of pieces and I, and I don't claim to have all the pieces in place, but I know that I've got a lot more pieces in place than most, most of the guys out there that claim to be experts. Definitely. All right. Nice. I hear that. And I think that's, I think in the West you're doing as well as any man could. Um, for me, I believe the solution, and this is what you know Tate and I have discussed a lot. And despite all the bad press, Tate is is very insightful, and it's also very caring. He takes care of you know the, the women that he's uh, in a relationship with. But mm. I think the answer, first and foremost, if you're looking to to build a relationship that works, is you need to find women who have the same wants expectations as you, and that that lies in traditional values. Mm. Where do you find traditional values nowadays? Because let's face it, the lure of dopamine hits from putting your ass on Instagram, the lure of, oh, Tinder, hookup culture, like it, it's hard to compete with. Mm -hmm. It has to be a society that still has religion in it. I don't think you'll find women who are wife material if they don't have some kind of religion in their life to, to make sure that they are living a disciplined life in the female perspective, which is not being promiscuous and not getting caught up in the attention. That, let's face it, as a pretty girl, it's, it's easy to get attention. You need something to hold you back from that. So I think finding a woman who is, is, you know, looking for traditional values, but of course you need to have your money, right? You need to be able to provide and protect. You have to be that masculine man. Finding a woman from a religious um, background with, with a strong, you know, religious family. And from there, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to preach too much, but I think we talk about the red pill. What if we talked about the green pill? And <laughs> that was um, all these guys, especially those who want to have traditional values, marriages, why not look at Islam as a potential solution? Because that is a framework with which... Both is that what the green pill is? It's... I think it is. Yeah, I saw okay. a, um, a YouTube... I'd love to remember the guy's name. I saw a YouTube uh, video a few weeks ago that mentioned that. I think it was the Cambridge Mosque. There was a speaker there, very eloquent mm. man, speaking about the, the green pill, not in the context of relationships. But if you're looking for healthy relationships nowadays, it has to be traditional. Man is man, woman is woman. Uh, for, for men like us, at least, that's what we're looking for. For that, for that sort of woman to be found, it has to be in a religious context. And again, the religion that has the most structure with which a man and a woman can both adhere to in order to be the best partners to each other is Islam. So I actually think the solution post red pill, and I'd encourage everyone to, you know, do your own research, make up your own mind, is to have relationships in the Islamic context, because that ensures that both parties, when practicing it earnestly, stick to the traditional values and be the best versions of, of partners that they can be. So I think the solution to red pill uh, is is the green pill and approaching relationships through the Islamic context. They, they how does that it works? Yeah, so let me uh, so let me put it to you this way. So how does that reconcile with the notion that you're going to have to be a bit of a player mm -hmm. to get your head right around women when um, the notion of Islam is to not exercise degeneracy, for example, and sleep around with a lot of women? Because unfortunately, the you know the reality is today. I mean. It, 
I mean, if you live here in North America, if you want to get your head squared away on what women are all about, what they respond to, what they don't respond to, you're going to have to date a bunch of women. You know, you're going to have to dig through some dirt to find some gold. And maybe you do find gold, maybe you don't. But the point that I'm making is you're going to have to have some experiment experiences. So how does that reconcile with Islam then? And I, I, don't, I, don't view, I don't view Western women as wife material, to be completely blunt, brother. Yeah, I think, well, I don't, I don't disagree with you, man. They're very hard to find here, aren't they? Yeah, I, I think if you're surrounded by other women who are, are liberal and by a culture that's, hey, you go, girl, you sleep with as many men as you want, and th this idea of chase hedonism and, and take drugs and you know all this stuff we see in the West, it's a godless society. Why would you expect women to be of a virtuous nature if there's nothing holding them back? And why would you, indeed, why would you expect men to be good partners if there's nothing? holding to them to account to say, if you want to, in Islam, if you want to sleep with a woman, then you need to take care of her. <laughs> that, that's, you know, so the man too can't go around and, and play the field. And I think, yes, I see what you're saying in that to learn women and game and, and these things, it, it does help to do a dating phase. But if you've got a good, virtuous, religious woman, do you really need to wade through all of that filth uh, that you find in the West? I don't necessarily think so. And my personal yeah. relationship is a testament to that without going into too much detail. I really do believe if you want an ethical, positive, traditional values relationship, then uh, relationships in the Islamic perspective have a lot of value to bring. I really do believe that. I'm just sort of marinating on that for a moment because I have the some green thoughts. Pill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the green pill. Uh, there, there's, there's certainly merit to it. I mean, I've talked to a lot of guys, um, you know this, I mean, I've done a lot of consults, a lot of them have been private. I've, I've probably had well over a thousand coaching calls by this point. And um, I've talked to a few guys that married traditionally conservative women from many different religions, in fact, uh, Islam, from Hinduism, from Christianity, from Catholicism, Judaism, any of those. And a lot of them have come to North America from a lot of these countries or they've or they've if it's not North America, it's another Western country like Germany or the UK or something like that. And they found that going through the going through the divorce process you know for example they've the woman that they married is not the woman that they get divorced from okay. so the whole subscriptions to certain religious beliefs if there's an opportunity to capitalize because women are opportunistic by nature let's be honest right if if you take somebody from one country and you put them in another country and they're female and there's a way to opportunistically benefit from that new environment that's how women are hardwired. And that's okay. They have to be hardwired that way to survive. They have to be harder that way for their children to survive, you know? So they will take advantage of legislation, family law that would be advantageous for them to just abandon their religious beliefs, subscriptions to maximize things like their hypergamy, you know, for example. Another one of the things that I've noticed as well too is it doesn't matter how much game you have. You can have, you can have watertight game. You can be good at what you're at. You know, the man that you are, the chasing of excellence, you have influence, you have the cars, you have people that look up at, up to you, you dress well, you're physically fit, you're competent, you're not boring, you know, all of that stuff. But you have to understand that women in general will always have a level of contempt, I believe. I want to run this up the flagpole and see what you do with this because, mm. you know, you've just done this with me. So I want to see what you say. Um, it's been said that men or sorry, that women treat men like men treat jobs. That's what I've heard. And what that means basically is when a man finds a good job, mm. he doesn't, 
he doesn't look for ways to exit it. He doesn't look for ways to improve it. He doesn't want to replace it with a new job. He just mm. surrenders himself to like, this is good. This is where I'm at, right? So they say that women treat men like men treat jobs. So in theory, when a woman finds her hypergamous best option, she, she wakes up in the morning, she looks at the guy, this is the best that I can do. He's absolutely phenomenal. She'll still find some way to be contemptuous and invite a little bit of chaos into your life from time to time. Even when things are going well, they'll, they'll manufacture indignation and they'll cause a little bit of chaos in your life. And I've seen this and I've been watching this and I've been thinking to myself, you know, all of this game stuff, all of this good, but just understand that when you invite a woman into your life, and by the way, Jewel, I know men that have multiple women in their lives. They have multiple children with them. And I've asked them offline, you know, I've said to them, I said, um, how do they all get along? And it's always the same answer. They fucking hate each other. They're at each other's throats. There's always problems coming up with it. You know, there's this, there's a certain degree of female nature that you've got to accept. There's some uh, slippage, you know, if you, you know what I mean? I don't know. What do you think about all those? I hear you, brother. I hear you. Now we talked about the fact that women carry baggage around. Now, if we look into traditional relationships and perhaps we talk about the Dom sub relationship where the man is, helping the woman regulate her emotions. Could there be a scenario where the man has his himself together and is empathetic enough and is enough of a leader to help a woman work through her daddy issues, which they all have, or, or her, her, the issues that she picked up during her formative years or from previous partners, perhaps, that leads to that creating drama? I don't think it's necessarily malicious. I don't think women create drama because they're nasty. I think... They, they want drama because it's a form of emotion and they're all about emotionality. Right. I think a lot I of them carry, and all humans carry issues from their formative years, you know, and most of the time, at least for me, I think Eastern European women are the best, you know, loyal long-term women to have as partners. A lot of the time in, in Eastern European countries, and again, in, in many, you know, emerging market countries, the dad won't be around because he's out working, he's busy, or he's emotionally a bit absent. So there'll be a bit of a, you know, a daddy issue thing there. With that traditional dynamic, that dom-sub where the man is, is dominant and is leading the submissive woman, perhaps the onus is on the man to help her work through her trauma so she doesn't have that inclination to create drama. Uh, and I can tell you, it is possible. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of empathy. It takes a lot of listening. You know, you need to be that guy who hears them and feels when their emotional state is off and talks, you know, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Oh, this, this, this. <laughs> you got to be that guy. Which is a lot of work and a lot of men don't do it. But I, I put it to you that it is possible to help a woman work through her trauma and to get rid of that inclination of drama and to have a drama-free existence, to have a harmonious existence. And it is possible to do that with, with multiple women as well. It just takes a man being together at, at the highest level. Being out of the West, I think, is essential. The legal system in the West really does uh, endorse and incentivize the worst from women. <laughs> it also means screening from you know, women who are naturally submissive and want to have a traditional values man lead them. But you can create a reality where you have an abundance of, of, of loyalty and positivity in your relationships. And I didn't used to have it. I was married for nine years to a Western woman. Trust me, I've been there. I know what that's like. It's soul-crushingly, uh, you know, just day-to-day just -day depressing, I think would be the word. But, you, you know, if you learn from that, you can go out and create your custom-made reality in terms of women. I don't think you can do it in the West, though. And I definitely don't think you can do it with Western women. It's very difficult. I would agree with that. I want to I want to ask you about red flags because you seem like a wise man that um, understands how to vet women that bring potential chaos and baggage into your life. 
Um, I have a chapter in my book, The Unplugged Alpha. Uh, there's 20 red flags in that book. I'm doing a first edition update. There's probably going to be 22 when I finish the update. So there's a couple more that I'll be adding. If you if you haven't got it, by the way, you can get the um, free chapter from the book by just opting into my email list. But I want to hear from you. So red flags, like what what do you look for when dealing with women about potentially inviting into your life on a long-term basis? Like what do you want to stay away from? Yep. So I'll focus on what I look for first and then, then the red flags after. So first of all, as I said, um, lo low body count is important uh, simply because if a woman's gone and slept with a bunch of men, then she's not really taking care of herself. Uh, you know, I, I want positive frequency people around me, people who take care of themselves. So how do you find a woman who hasn't been with 20 men by the age of 25? It has to be from a traditional values, good family, religious family. That, that's essential. Um, Naturally submissive, wants the traditional dynamics. Again, if a woman wants her man to be a woman and they want that liberal equality, go do that. Mm -hmm. I have equal rights in terms of women, but I'm also a man and they're also a woman. And, and they want me to be that man and I want them to be that woman. So find a woman who wants those traditional values. And for me, another thing I think is important. Try to avoid, generally speaking, women who grew up in big cities. You want women who grew up in a traditional way with their families without you know, thousands of men coming onto them, walking down the streets. Cities are a, generally, even in, in the emerging markets, are a hub for more liberal thought, more hookup culture. So that village girl who's religious, comes from a good family, is naturally respectful, submissive, wants the traditional values. I think that's the best place to screen from. And for me, that, that would be Eastern Europe. And that's, you know, I've talked about this with, 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 you know, a lot of different men and they all agree as well. Um, in terms of red flags, I mean, I think the, the key one is how deeply has all this Western liberal... Uh, programming affected them because as we know feminism robs women of being fulfilled if a woman wants to go into competition with a man and i'm not going to cook for a man that's sexist i'm not going to support him well then you, you're likely not going to be fulfilled in your life either again show me a deeply fulfilled feminist show me a feminist who has fulfilling relationships i think there's a direct correlation i read a study about this between the more feminist a, a woman is and the more likely she, she, to consume hardcore violent pornography because <laughs> they don't find they don't find that dominance that, I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey, most popular book of all time, uh, at least last few decades, women want a man who is dominant, who is masculine, who can protect, who can provide, who can show them the mysteries of life, all these sorts of things. Uh, so how deeply has she subscribed to all this liberal thinking that is actually damaging for her was one thing I'd screen for. Um, any, any, any form of, of disloyalty or, or wanting to be the man or, or wanting to I mean, any time her values in life don't match yours and mm -hmm. her expectations don't match yours, get rid of it. And I think the key thing is for young men is listen to the red flags. Every man I know who's been through the divorce rape machine, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, he, he knew there was red flags. He just didn't listen. I think young men today or men who are you know, looking to build a, a lasting, healthy relationship, you know what red flags are. Listen to them and act on them. Not, no, 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 she's different. No, no, she'll be okay. The amount of guys who just- I can change her, bro. Yeah, that's <laughs> maybe, but is it worth the return? I don't know. It's it's brutal to see. I mean, even my my you know when I was married for years, there was plenty of red flags there, but I I, I didn't listen to them. So I think just listening to the red flags is absolutely key. I think it's men, yeah, men, and I mean, if you want to be in a position to choose, if you want to be in a position where you're spoiled for choice, you have to be a, you have to be a man that's worth the salt. You know, you have, to, you have to do the work. You have to have the influence. You have to be the, you have to be competent. You have to be interesting. You have to be funny. You have to have money. You have to be able to make money. You have to be able to solve problems. You have to have all those things. So it's like men live in, you know, most men today live a life of uh, very quiet, silent, 
suffering and desperation. They just don't have a lot of options. And even if they do have the option to be with a woman, they just, they don't do well with it. They're, they're like guys like us in our, in our marriages when we were probably, uh, you know, engaged, setting up for the party, doing the reception, thinking everything will work out in the end because you take vows, you know, you know, you take these important vows and they're supposed to protect you. They're supposed to put you in a, a position of love into perpetuity, but it, it doesn't seem to work out that way, especially with the types of modern westernized types of women that you expose yourself to. I, I of course recognize that there are places in the world where women haven't been polluted in that sense, where their minds haven't been uh, indoctrinated into these belief, belief systems, where they haven't shared their body with dozens and dozens of men. Um, I mean, the data on it is conclusive. I mean, when you look at the teachman study, it's always the same thing that you can go back to. If, if a woman's been with more than one guy, she's a worse choice than a virgin. You keep going down the scale and they stop collecting the data after 20. And 20 is like, that's not even high anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right? Isn't it? Wow. Isn't it? Isn't it sad that modern day culture encourages women to do something that's so inherently damaging for them? It really is sad. I, I, I don't blame Western women for being in the state they're in. The, the, the culture, it comes at you from every angle. It comes from your friends, from yeah. Netflix, from your Instagram. You go, girl, chase whatever hedonism you want, do whatever you want. But before you know it, you've disqualified yourself from being able to have a healthy, positive relationship with a man who respects you. And, and I mean, a, man, a man's main, main focus in life is his mission. As I've seen it, a woman's mm -hmm. main focus and what leads to fulfillment is getting into a relationship with a man she respects. And, and if you've had that much intimacy with strangers and you've been that indoctrinated with feminism, you can't respect a man. So how can we, how can we fulfilled as a woman if you, can, if you don't respect any men? Yeah. I just I don't see it working. It, it's a real, it's a crying shame. If you want evidence of this and all you have to do is turn on YouTube or even any social media and you'll see these clips show up all the time with podcasters sitting with the table filled with women. It's, 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 it's the fastest growing segment, right? Like you see this everywhere now and they try to have conversations with the women about these notions and the ideas of feminism, promiscuity, uh, gender roles like blue jobs, pink jobs sort of things. And they, and, and they never get it. It just, it's, it's like talking to a brick wall. They never get it. And these guys and gals that are running these shows, they try to hold these women accountable. They'll never be accountable. They'll never change their mindset. And this is what you're dealing with in, you know, the West. Um, it's bizarre, so isn't it? Yeah, I guess the solution. I mean, if, look, if I was a, a, a guy in my 20s and I was in the West and I was faced with the vast majority of women not wanting what I want, which is traditional, healthy relationship. I would focus on brotherhood. I mean, I know you've got a men's community. Obviously, I'm a big, big, you know, proponent of, and I put a lot of energy into Tate's War Room. I get that circle of brothers around me because we're, we're not meant to be lone wolves. We're meant to be pack animals. We're meant to have supportive brothers around us. I get my yeah, money. Yeah, that whole Sigma yeah. male thing is completely bizarre to me where they, oh, just be a lone wolf. Like, look, I get the world looks like shit to a lot of people living in the West and the, and the romantic ideal of living in a cabin in the woods might seem like a good one and being a, a Sigma male, the lone wolf. But you're right. And I've said this many times too, you need a tribe of brothers. You need a brotherhood. The way of men is the way of the gang. That's the way that we've yeah, been designed right. to operate. You have to surround yourself with competent men that are going to test you, that you're also going to be holding accountable. And if they cannot be tested and they will not be held accountable, you must remove them. Sorry, man, I didn't mean to jump no, in, no, but exactly. I get so passionate about those ideas. Well, it's a hugely valuable thing. And, and as I get older, I, I realize how important brotherhood is. And, and Tate speaks to this all the time. In fact, that's part of the reason why the, you know, the cancer machines come after him. 
telling men, hey, you have the right to reject all that modern rubbish that you should be, you know, effeminate and you should allow women to walk all over, all over you. Telling Western men, go out and find that tribe, find that likely, you know, the, the, the brotherhood with the same beliefs and views and drive as you. Get your money right and then perhaps get out of the West and go to a country that has the same values as you where you can have healthy relationships. I think while it's a very positive message for men, the powers that be don't really want Western men thinking like that. Otherwise, you'd have, you'd have an uprising. If, if all of the men of the West realized, hang on a sec, the way relationships have been impacted makes it pretty much impossible to have a healthy relationship. I'm going to work with my brothers that I trust, you know, my tribe, to get my money right and get out of the West. <laughs> that could become a problem. And I think it's, it's conceptualizing that concept of passport bros. Mm-hmm. It's guys saying, you know what? I want to go to a place where women still want a man to be a man and they are still a woman. And I don't want to mess around with all this liberal, confused take on relationships. And, and I think, I really do think that's the answer. If you're a young man and you're looking for a healthy relationship, get brothers around you, build businesses, win together, then get out of the West and go to a country where traditional values and traditional relationships are still the norm. They do mm-hmm. exist. Places like Eastern Europe, places like Asia, any, anywhere where there's you know, a country with religion, if you subscribe to that religion, is a fantastic choice to find a good, loving, supportive, traditional values woman. I wouldn't bother trying to do it in the West. Get your money right and get out. I, I see no other move on the chessboard. And that is a important distinction that most passport bros overlook is they think, well, if I just leave or if I just temporarily leave Illinois, Wisconsin or whatever you know city they're in and they go to an Eastern European country and they find a beautiful woman and then bring her back and they work at a post office living in their mother's basement. That's yeah. not enough. You know, you I've have to do the work on yourself because you will get destroyed by those women as well. Exactly. A little saying I want to share. So in this Soviet community, there's a saying, I don't know how to say it in Russian, but a man should be slightly more attractive than a monkey. <laughs> and what they're referring to there is, as a man, it's your duty to be capable. No one cares what you look like. Yeah. You've got a nice sense of humor. Your job is to be capable. Now, some people might try to say that Soviet women are gold diggers. Nope. They, they say, I want my man to look after me and to be a man. And then I'll look after him in the way a woman looks after a man. And so these traditional values, this idea of you need to be capable, there's, there's, a, there's an increased burden of responsibility. No Soviet girl is going to sleep with you because you made her laugh. No traditional values, religious Eastern European woman is going to sleep with you, you just because you're handsome. You need to demonstrate that you have it together enough as a man to properly take care of her and by extension her family. And then she will give you her intimacy and you, you can you know, create a, a life together where you are mutually supportive and everybody wins. It's so funny, the amount of people who, who try to say that Eastern European women are gold diggers. So let me get this straight. She expects you to look after her financially, but she'll cook for you. She'll support you. She'll take care of you if you're sick. She wouldn't dream of talking to another man. She, she will give you undying energy and love and feminine care. All right, good. Keep gold digging. <laughs> I'd much rather that than some Western woman who's like, no, I don't need no man and doesn't give you anything, but still spends your money anyway. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. <laughs> I'm all for yeah. traditional values, man. Like I said, it's a it's a big puzzle with hundreds of pieces and you need to get them all checked out, right? Um, Got to start wrapping up. Um, so I want to get get through these super chats real quick and then we'll sort of wrap up. Uh, excuse me. No, there's never a call in on the Plane to Win show. That's only on the Unplugged Alpha, on the Unplugged Alpha podcast channel. So I'll be live tonight at eight o'clock. You guys can uh, ask whatever questions you want there. Uh, we already dealt with the real world thing uh, for the future of that. There was another one here. Hey, brothers, what advice do you guys have about building a team in the tech world without relying on 
non-disclosure agreements and meeting trustworthy people ahead of time. Trust is earned, but as my business expands, it's about finding the right team. So that's interesting. That's that's a human resource question. Um, I think we should both answer that. So I'll let you go first, man. Like, what do you think? I mean, look, you can try and build a network yourself or you can tap into communities that exist. Again, I know, Rich, you have one. Obviously, I, I, I'm involved in Kate's Ballroom. The amount of solid tech guys we have inside, you, you have literally hundreds. Find a community that is that exists that's being run by men who you can respect and let that filter of good men work for you. Trying to set up a brotherhood yourself is a slow process. I go and find one you can trust. And, you know, NDAs, all these sorts of things, you need to find the right character of man. You're not going to find that without joining some kind of brotherhood, such as that led by uh, Rich or by Andrew Tate. NDAs don't have a lot of value anymore. Um, I get why people want them signed, but they're but they're not really that valuable. So uh, I'm more of the mind, I, I guess maybe it's because I'm a little bit older now, but I'm more of the mind that I tend to avoid staying away from businesses that require a lot of human resources. Um, I have the School of Entrepreneurship, which is something I open for enrollment every quarter usually i think i'll have it open again uh may 1st so if you're on my email list on this thing below on the red flags you'll get notified there first um so i prefer to set up businesses that are independent location independent you can pick them up and move them at any time you have a low requirement for human resources and networking people will find a way when you invite them into your business your life and your romance stuff like that of letting you down from time to time i think the brotherhood's a very good angle to sort of establish and weed out or, or to separate the wheat from the chaff um, if you, if you cross brothers in a membership community, you'll be out very, very quickly. If you mislead people, you'll be out very quickly. If you double cross, you know what I'm saying, right? So I think any one of those types of organizations, whether it's entrepreneurs org, war room, my own community, whatever happened, you see a good fit with. And if you need people, that's a good place to start. Just make sure that there's competent people in there and that they're actually doing stuff. Hold them accountable. If they're just masturbators, if they're just talking, if they're just, um, you know, they're, they're not acting, they're not doing anything with the time, then that's a pretty good indicator that you're dealing with the wrong group or the wrong people anyway. Uh, let's see what else we got in here that might have popped up. I think that's everything. Yeah, that's it. Um, closing thoughts, Jewel. What is it that you wish people, or, or, or let's do it this way. Closing thoughts from this regard. Assuming that you would listen as a young man to a conversation with you, if you go back in a time machine and talk to your younger self at 20, let's say, what advice would you give to the young man out there inclusive of yourself to do differently? I think the key thing that I would say is young men, you have the right to be selectively selfish with your time, with who you let into your life, with what you focus on. There are so many different influences trying to program you to be a certain way, which isn't in your best interest, to be that plow horse, to be that obedient sheep. If you feel you're the only one in your social circles who looks at the world differently, and if you feel you want to live a different life, that's okay. I mean, if I just hung out with the crowd in Australia and just lived that life, I'd still be in Australia. Instead, you know, I've seen 90 countries and I've got an incredible reality and have incredible brothers. You know, the, the Tates are, are my brothers. I have the opportunity to speak to people like you, Rich. If I just followed what society wanted for me, I wouldn't have any of the experiences or the, you know, the achievements that I've got. So young men, be selfish, choose your own path, your own custom-made reality and get angry. If you want to change your situation, be angry about it. That's a good thing. As Tate often says, channel that into being the man you want to be and going and building that custom-made reality. That's probably going to involve getting your money right and getting out of the West. Specialize in a field that's in demand. As you've just said, Rich, ideally you can be location independent. 
get out of the West, find your tribe, live life on your terms. I, I think young men aren't told enough that that is possible. And again, that ties in with the power of Andrew Pate. He role models that. He grew up in, in Luton, England, a welfare kid, and now you know lives you know the dream, so to speak. So that would be my key message. Men should be selectively selfish and should consciously choose their own belief systems and goals and live true to them, completely reject everything that society tells you, even if you're the only one in your social circles who views the world that way, you have the right to do that. I think that's good advice to put yourself first. It's it's difficult to convince young men to do that because they've been programmed their entire youth uh, with every mechanism out there from government to media to Hollywood to sitcoms to advertisers to some cultures and religion. Sacrifice yourself, you know, become less so she can become more. Um, you know, all of those narratives are things that you need to do away with and leave behind because look, look, at some point, again, a lot of people watching this are going to be like, yes, uh, you know, whatever, fine. But at some point you've got to come to the realization that ideas, beliefs that you've held true, that you've ego invested in are probably not serving you. And you have to update those beliefs. That's how you improve as a man. You have to update beliefs that you subscribe to that don't serve you, that don't align with your goals. You know, when, you know, one of the questions that one of my great mentors want, you know, would often ask you when you would get in a conversation is after you're done saying something or rationalizing. And I've often said men love to complicate their lives and justify why. So it's, here's my thing. Here's my situation. You'll see this all the time when people call in on my shows, you know, here's my problem. And then they'll have like some justifications to why they have that problem. And that's what men like to do. Complicate life, justify why. Ask yourself or ask friends of yours or brothers of yours, how's that working out for you? And then ask them again once they try to explain it. Okay, and how's that working out for you? Great. And then you'll get to the root of the problem, you know, by just having these conversations and holding each other accountable and diving into these sorts of topics. Because like you said, Joel, you know, if you want to improve yourself as a man, especially if you're a young man, it can be done very, very quickly and easily. But you have to surrender to certain realities of the world that aren't serving you, will not serve you going forward, and leave them behind. And then you just walk away from them. So um, I know that you have in the past tried to remain mostly anon. Do you want people to find you on social media? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm loud Shout now. I'm, do I'm doxxed. <laughs> so the Sartoro shoot on Instagram is where I'm most active. Um, a lot of it's, you know... Just materialistic fun, but again, the idea is role modeling what's possible. And I, I do try and throw some wisdom out there as well. Um, the one thing I'd like to say, mate, just to round this out, thank you. Post my divorce, I was in a pretty dark place. I didn't have any brothers around me. It was your voice and your videos back when you were doing them driving around that really helped me stay positive, stay focused. When I had the whole world coming after me, a man who goes through a divorce, his friends will think he's a bad guy. The kids will think you're a bad guy. Society will come at you questioning what you're doing. It was your words who empowered me to stay true to what I knew, which was, hey, I deserve a better reality than a woman who's exploiting me. I deserve to have love and support from women. And you really, man, it was your voice that really helped me get through a very dark time. So thank you. And let me host you in Dubai, man. At least I could do. Get over here. I'll show you the best of the city. I appreciate that, Jewel. Thank you so much. You guys have a good day. Leave a comment below and uh, hit the like button. And uh, you can go ahead and find Jewel on Instagram. It's the best place to check him out. We'll see you guys.